Welcome to Free Thoughts from Libertarianism.org and the Cato Institute. I'm Aaron Powell. And I'm Trevor Burrus. Joining us today is Brink Lindsay. He's Vice President for Research at the Cato Institute. So this is our first episode of Free Thoughts since bringing in the Trump regime. Um, we're going to talk about an article that you recently published at Vox titled, Liberals and Libertarians Should Unite to Block Trump's Extremism. So this goes back to a project viewers for quite some time, namely libertarianism, yes. as you termed it. Um, so what is libertarianism? Well, it's a terrible sounding word that I didn't make up, uh, but I wrote a piece for the New Republic uh, back in 2006, 10 years ago, uh, in the waning years of the uh, George W. Bush administration at a time when uh, libertarians were utterly disgusted with uh, Republicans in the White House and Congress. And so liberals and libertarians had a lot in common. They both had a lot of uh, dislike for what was Republican control of Washington. So taking advantage of that opportunity uh, and seeing that the uh, historical uh, ties between libertarians and conservatives were unraveling, uh, I proposed uh, that in place of the old uh, libertarian right-wing fusionism, uh, we might explore uh, a libertarian left fusionism, uh, which the uh, New York New Republic headline writers dubbed libertarianism. So the idea was uh, conservatism uh, has – uh, in recent years or had in recent years morphed away from any real concern with limited government and becoming more and more of a kind of just raw right-wing populism. Uh, and, that and this was in 2006. This was in 2006. <laughs> yeah. So I was a canary in the coal mine back then. At any rate, uh, with the right uh, having so little to offer libertarians, uh, it seemed uh, – uh, and with, with liberals having been out of power for a long time, uh, it seemed like perhaps uh, it was worth seeing uh, – exploring our, uh, our uh, common ground and seeing if there were ways to compromise away uh, the areas where we disagree. Uh, so that, uh, that article went nowhere. Um, that idea was talked about a lot. Uh, but at the time, uh, this was just after the 2006 uh, midterm elections where the Democrats swept uh, both houses of Congress. Uh, so they were feeling pretty heady uh, and uh, like they didn't need anybody to tell them how to change liberalism, that liberalism looked like it was uh, on, the, uh, on the rise. Uh, that feeling was strengthened a couple of years later with uh, first the, uh, uh, the emergence on the scene of the charismatic Barack Obama uh, and second with the uh, financial crisis, uh, which – uh, gave a black eye and conventional wisdom at least to free market economics and made liberals even less likely to want to uh, make nice with libertarians. Uh, then during uh, the Obama years, this idea of a kind of emergent democratic majority really took hold in, uh, in center-left circles. The idea that with rising percentages of the population counted for by uh, ethnic minorities, uh, <clears throat> that, uh, that there was a kind of demographic destiny to uh, democratic uh, control of American politics in the 21st century. Uh, so here, uh, liberals felt like uh, we can uh, do fine on our own. We don't need any help from libertarians and that was the dominant sentiment. Meanwhile, uh, libertarians were skeptical from the outset because of deep-seated uh, suspicions of uh, and constantly being rebuffed by people on the left. Uh, those feelings got turbocharged uh, with the election of Barack Obama who freaked a lot of libertarians out with his – uh, decidedly left of center uh, viewpoints. Uh, and then with the rise of the Tea Party, uh, it looked like right-wing populism had a libertarian flavor to it again. Uh, and so 
uh, this idea of a uh, liberal, libertarian fusionism just completely fell by the wayside uh, because liberals thought they were doing great all by themselves and libertarians uh, thought that uh, really their best bet was the populist right rather than ganging up with anybody against it. Uh, so uh, all of this occurred to me that, that the 10th anniversary of this piece was coming up just uh, with uh, the surprising election of Donald Trump. And I went back and looked at that piece and I saw that, uh, that the last lines of the article were something like, can liberals and libertarians learn to work together? Uh, maybe not, but if not, uh, the most likely alternative is for them to languish separately. And so I thought, wow, that, uh, that looks pretty much on the money. We're uh, languishing uh, sounds like uh, I wish we were languishing. We're cowering in fetal positions, <laughs> terrified of what might happen next. Uh, so – I decided to uh, to uh, trot this argument out again and see in, if in liberalism's dark hours uh, there were any takers for moving liberalism in response to Trump in a more libertarian direction. The the overlapping views, though, of the people on the left and right who seem to get the electorate excited in this last election, namely Trump, and then on the left, Bernie Sanders, because um, Clinton very conspicuously failed to get anyone excited. Um, it seems like a a flat-out rejection of a lot of what you're advocating, that if there's anything the left and the right seem to agree on now, it's, say, being opposed to trade. It's being opposed to the uh, the dynamism of an economy that you call for. It's wanting to shut down. It's a kind of nationalism, whether it's a you know right-wing um, – semi-xenophobic form or kind of a, a left-wing trade, union, trade form. union form. So if if that's what they seem to agree on, how why would the left in any case decide to jettison the one thing that the American populace seems to like? Well, yes. Populism uh, had a big year in 2016 uh, in both parties. Uh, the Sanders phenomenon now overshadowed by the uh, amazing uh, rise and victory of Trump. But but uh, if Trump hadn't happened, we'd still be talking about the, um, the incredible Sanders phenomenon because it was so surprising. Uh, so uh, yes, uh, a, a sort of virulently anti-market populism uh, uh, was – uh, waxing on uh, both sides of the partisan aisle um, and lots of Democrats now or lots of people on the left now uh, are thinking, uh, if only we had run Bernie, we would have won. Uh, this proves that we need to double down on on hardcore leftism uh, rather than mushy establishment technocratic neoliberalism. Uh, and so for sure, uh, there are strong voices on the uh, left side of American politics today urging uh, – to uh, a f fighting fire with fire, that we can uh, fight uh, right-wing populism with left-wing populism. Uh, I have two problems with this uh, on policy grounds and on political grounds. On policy grounds, it's awful. Uh, it's the antithesis of libertarianism, so I'm not interested in it. Um, on political grounds, uh, I think uh, battles between uh, left-wing populists and uh, right-wing populists uh, tend to have a kind of Bambi versus Godzilla outcome. Uh, that if you're going to organize people on anti-intellectual, passionate us versus themism, uh, blood and soil works a lot better than whatever kind of attenuated class consciousness there is in the United States. So uh, I think as a political stratagem for the Democratic Party, doubling down on Sanders' populism is just a terrible idea. Uh, 
But, it, but it may very well carry the day. So I, I wrote this piece with very low hopes uh, that uh, that anything would come of it. There is within the center left today uh, – the the policy views that I would like to see elevated and prioritized, they're there. That is, there are people on the left who uh, who support a, a kind of uh, pro-market, pro-growth uh, reforms. Uh, so this isn't something like completely alien that you have to graft over onto the left from, from other quarters. It's just elevating these voices within uh, the center left uh, and, pri- and making uh, these uh, reforms a higher priority. Uh, but right now, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not seeing that working out. We'll see what happens over the tumultuous days, weeks, months and years to come. Has it struck you as odd for a, a while or at least maybe even before the first libertarian piece that there is an alliance or has been an alliance between the right and libertarians? Is that is that always kind of irked you or did it only irk you in, in the 2006 era? Yeah, it, it didn't irk me until uh, – until around the time I wrote that article. Uh, so from – I came of – I was a teenager uh, and sort of became politically aware during the uh, during the Carter years. Um, and from that point forward, I was philosophically a libertarian uh, but in sort of the real world a conservative sympathizer. I thought uh, that on the three big issues of the day, economics, national security and social issues – uh, the Republicans were clearly right on two out of the three. I was a Cold War hawk. That made it much easier. Um, uh, and on the issues where they were wrong, social conservatism, it tended to be more lip service than real substantive policymaking. So to me, back then in the 80s, it was an easy call to to think that my libertarian ideas would on net be advanced by conservative Republicans uh, uh, gaining power. So be careful what you wish for. Uh, in 2000, uh, that wish came true. Republicans had uh, uh, control of the White House and both houses of Congress uh, and proceeded to govern in an extremely unlibertarian manner. Uh, so uh, it was uh, really disillusionment with uh, with getting what you uh, had hoped for uh, and seeing that it didn't work out at all well uh, and seeing the drift of conservatism away from uh, being really interested in limited government and more towards uh, bashing the left and sort of stoking uh, the the uh, the id of the right-wing base with red meat. That seemed much more uh, what conservatism was about in the O's to me at that time. Uh, and uh, And so I thought, I just don't see how libertarian ideas are going to have larger sway over American life. Uh, when they are framed in a package with uh, with social conservatism in secular decline and a kind of Neanderthal anti-intellectual uh, populism. So you're making these arguments to politicians. Um, you're you're saying here are the policies that you on the left ought to advance um, if you want a prayer of coming back into power, giving a a counter-narrative to the Trump populism. Um, but these people are beholden to their voters um, and the voters seem to not be interested in these issues. And so going back to – you know, so part of your – a lot of your argument depends on like, look, what we want is we want prosperity. Um, we want growth but we want to couple that with protections for people who are hurt in a dynamic market. Um, but the the people seem to think like we've – so the argument – say the argument for free trade um, and the argument in favor of immigration as a 
source for economic growth are about as well settled as policy arguments get and and have been for you know since the time of Adam Smith at least um, and yet the voters continue to reject them and they seem utterly uninterested in the data and evidence and arguments um, and so why would these proposals work I guess even if they work? Like even if they lead to the policy outcomes we want, why would politicians embrace these things if the people don't seem to care and seem to want to trade off you know, America rah-rah or class consciousness for growth? Well, I'm, I'm aiming a policy vision at politicians, not at voters. I think if there's anything we learned over 2016 is that voters don't start with a bunch of policy positions and then see which team lines up with their views. That's just not the way it works at all. Over the course of the, just the past year, Republicans have completely flip-flopped their views on trade and Russia just because team membership and Team Red now entails new views. So uh, really – for the typical voter, uh, policy positions are very lightly held. Uh, the, the one deep choice uh, that voters make is what team am I on? Uh, and these days, it's a pretty easy choice to make. It's the team that doesn't hate my guts. Uh, so, uh, so we have these sort of political identities, cultural identities with very little necessary policy content to them uh, and then scrambles amongst interest groups and ideologues to try to get – uh, the elites that that match up the identity with a policy program to get your favorite things on onto that program. Uh, so, what policies go along with conservatism and with uh, uh, progressivism? Uh, uh, I think are not generally up to the voters, just in terms of how things work. As far as my message to policymakers of either party, uh, I start with for swearing any expertise about when, what wins elections. I'm a libertarian. Most of my views are very unpopular. Uh, uh, the idea that it, I will say, you know, do the libertarian thing and you'll win a lot of votes, that's just – it's the pundit's fallacy that people, ideologues of all types uh, are prey to and it's especially sort of uh, unconvincing uh, coming from the group uh, that never wins elections. I start with we have a, uh, a substantive policy crisis in the country. Uh, we have the combination of – uh, slow growth and high inequality, high inequality meaning that that th just looking at the growth rate uh, doesn't tell you uh, how lousy things are for most people because most of that growth is going to people at the top end. So if you put together slow growth and high inequality, you get to the point where over the past – over the 21st century, uh, the typical household today is making less than it was in 2000. Maybe it's going to catch up this year but basically uh, it's been uh, stagnation for – uh, for the 21st century, it turns out that so first that's that's bad. Uh, the just uh, in material economic terms, the average growth rate in the U.S. for the 21st century has been one percent annual growth in real GDP per capita. Uh, that compares to the average growth rate during the 20th century of two percent uh, growth. In, uh, Is that that big of a deal, though? One or two percent? <laughs> yeah. So it's half, right? Yeah. Uh, so it's the difference between uh, income, national income, the uh, the economy uh, per head uh, doubling every 35 years or doubling every 70 years. So will the economy double over a person's normal lifetime or quadruple over a no normal lifetime? In other words, by the time you're old, will the economy be? Uh, size A or size half A, or, uh, or it's to say if, if it was one percent for the last for the twentieth century, it would be like 
1965 now or that's something right. like that. It would, that, that that's the dramatically, dramatically it would have. Yeah. So compound interest works wonders over the longer term. Um, so in terms of the uh, just the stakes and the possibility of rising living standards, those possibilities are uh, are uh, much narrowed by uh, having the growth growth rate in terms of. Uh, Sort of political economy, a whole bunch of our uh, government uh, programs are based on this idea of sort of constantly uh, increasing dollars that we can spread around. Uh, if that's slowing down uh, the problems with the long-term fiscal viability of, uh, of Medicare and Medicaid and Social Security get all that more severe. Uh, but then beyond these sort of dollars and cents issues, uh, there are increasing reasons to worry that economic stagnation is just very bad for liberal democracy. Uh, back 10, 12 years ago, uh, a Harvard economics professor, Benjamin Friedman, wrote this book, The Moral Consequences of Economic Growth, uh, uh, which argued at length uh, that uh, that uh, economic growth is uh, goes along with uh, – uh, greater openness, cosmopolitanism, tolerance, and by contrast, uh, bad times or prolonged uh, deterioration or stagnation in economic circumstances lead to a kind of defensive crouch values, uh, protectionism, xenophobia, nationalism, uh, scapegoating the other. Um, and this is really a question about rates, not levels. Uh, so poor countries that are fast growing, people are optimistic and on the go. Rich countries that are stagnant uh, get really uh, uh, irate, uh, yes. petulant, <laughs> uh, pissy, I mean, any of the above. Uh, Trumpy. Or the, the, there you go, Trumpy. Yeah. Uh, so uh, here, when 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 Friedman was making this argument uh, a while ago, it all seemed sort of you know intellectually compelling. Uh, now it feels viscerally compelling uh, that over the past year we've seen. Uh, uh, the, the rise of these populist movements that we were just talking about, which uh, there's a ongoing back and forth about the extent to which economic anxiety underlies uh, the Trump phenomenon in particular or whether it's just racism or racial resentment. Uh, I don't think you can separate the two uh, I, because the data show that, that bad economic times tend to bring racial resentment and, and sort of uh, – Opposition to them uh, to the to the surface make it more salient. When you look at uh, uh, particularly at sort of relative gains over the past twenty thirty years, uh, everybody's everybody who's less skilled is swimming against the tide of an economy that's uh, that's uh, oriented more and more towards uh, people with high skills, um, but. Um, sort of swimming against that stream has been the lessening of discrimination against blacks and women over this time period. So that despite a, a sort of pervasively less favorable environment for working class uh, uh, people, uh, women and blacks nonetheless have registered strong income gains because the <clears throat> reduction of discrimination has outweighed uh, the, the economic factors. So you have smart income gains for women, blacks, and men are just absolutely at the bottom of the barrel. White, white men are, 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 uh, have been relatively uh, worse off over this period and unsurprising then that you're seeing uh, this, uh, these spasms and convulsions of protest and, uh, and a sense that the governing uh, uh, institutions are illegitimate because they're not uh, working for me anymore, uh, all of that concentrated amongst white men. So I think uh, it's uh, very clear uh, that, uh, that the Trump phenomenon and populism more generally is tied in uh, with 
uh, with this underlying economic malaise of slow growth and high inequality. Uh, and I don't see any way to do anything about it except, except through some kind of libertarian uh, uh, program. Well, do you think that the conservatives are – are you prepared to – I mean I agree in the sense that, that I think you've diagnosed the, pro, the problem correctly and there has to be something done particularly on the regulatory side. But it also seems like you've taken conservatives – and written them off, but because I mean, there was a huge never Trump, and and those people, I mean, there might be more never Trumpers in two years in the conservative movement than even now if he can if he does particularly crazy things, which I think is a pretty yeah. Good yeah bet. Let me let me back up. When I say the libertarian program, I mean a moderate a moderate libertarian program that combines free market reforms with uh, a a reassuring enough safety net uh, that that the whole package is viable. Uh, I could picture that. Being situated amongst uh, on the Republican, I can picture Republicans forwarding that agenda. I can picture Democrats forwarding that agenda. Uh, I think I think this kind of moderate libertarian economic policy fits better with social liberalism than it does with social conservatism. So I'd rather see that package on the on the left than on the right. But I can. There's lots of reformicons who are talking about a same a, a general the same kind of deal. We've got to revive growth with freer markets. But we have to make that possible and allay people's uh, uh, uncertainties and fears and anxieties through uh, more effective social policy. Um, so I think that's that is the program that works uh, that it, that it works um, politically. Uh, in that, I don't see any way we can uh, uh, we can move forward with free market reforms in the current atmosphere of anxiety where. Free market reforms are just going to make people feel even more exposed to uh, to volatility, creative destruction, et cetera, uh, heighten their defensive crouch um, uh, unless it's packaged with a, a program of, of – uh, with social policies that sort of take the rough edges off of, uh, off of creative destruction. You're talking about welfare state kind of – or retraining or things like this. Yes. So those are the – And in particular – the way I see things, there is an underlying demand for government backstop against uncertainty, against change, against downward mobility, against whatever. Um, bad things, the hazards of life. And uh, nobody has done anything to, to reduce that public demand. That demand is there. Uh, and so it's like squeezing a balloon. If you squeeze uh, one set of policies as an answer to that demand, uh, you're going to get a pooch out on the other side. Um, and conservatives have been relatively more effective at squeezing on on spending growth. Uh, that is, so redistribution. Uh, it's uh, it's it's easy to rail against freeloaders, and uh, and that um, suits conservative rhetoric. Uh, it's hard to get anything done in Congress these days. So big new spending programs are very hard to pass. So what happens – so that's that's a relatively easy bridge to hold. Uh, but when you hold it, what happens? That demand gets pushed into less uh, transparent – it gets pushed into regulations that prop up existing businesses and protect people that way. It gets pushed into tax credits that, that do the same thing as the social programs supposedly but on the cheap but end up directing most of their benefits to high-income people who get the tax write-offs. So you get – you get policy pushed into even less libertarian-friendly uh, uh, areas that gum up the economy and 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 that are less visible and and therefore uh, have fewer constituencies that might oppose them. The way I see it, the best libertarians can hope for in the current 
environment uh, is uh, is to make redistribution as open and in tr- as transparent and on budget as possible, not have it buried in the regulatory code, not have it buried in the tax code, but have it up in front in terms of, uh, of money transfers. First, governments are pretty good at writing checks. That's one thing they know how to do, so they can at least do that competently as opposed to micromanaging how people live their lives. They don't do that very well at all. Uh, secondly, there is an ultimate constraint on how much uh, fiscal transfer they can do, which is that uh, they have to be paid for by taxes and people don't like paying taxes. So the constraint ultimately on the degree of redistribution is people's appetite for taxation. That appetite is not voracious. So that puts constraints on government. Whereas in the current environment, when everything is fair game for expressing this demand for uh, for backstopping, uh, there are no constraints because uh, – because regulation and its effects are just completely invisible to everybody. Uh, and so I think we're in a much less free economy, much less free society uh, uh, today than we would be if, if instead of pretending it was possible to eliminate all redistribution possible, we instead focused our efforts on channeling it into those areas where, where it doesn't have all these pernicious uh, ancillary side effects. Does shifting to that to a more transparent social safety net and more transparent redistribution policies risk, though, deepening the cultural and racial divides in this country. Um, so there's a – there's this very deep-rooted, you know, the from the conservative side argument that we don't want to give money to moochers. We don't want to enable the lazy and so that's the pro- – one of the problems with um, redistribution, the other one being the kind of what's mine is mine argument. Um, but at least with our existing system, we're saying, look, if we're going to give you money. Um, we're going to help you out because you're poor. We're going to give you give it to you in the form of reasonable things like housing assistance and paying for food and paying for education, like stuff that we in kind of a paternalistic sense know is at least good for you. Whereas if we just cut you a check, um, I mean it is true that a – this is not not all people. Not all poor people are poor because of a, a lack of self control, self control, or foresight or wisdom. But but many are um, that they're going to just blow it. They're going to use it in ways that aren't good. It's not going to help, and it's going to look that transparency is going to make it even more apparent that those of us who are who do learn and earn a living are simply paying for the lifestyles of those who don't. Um, which all? Which, which, yeah. I mean, uh, to double down on that, add one more. That that was part of, for example, the hillbilly elegy book about discussion that the welfare state has destroyed in, in his mind many parts of Middle America in a way that that is not adequately appreciated. Maybe those people went and voted for Trump for some reason or whatever, but they're 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 waiting for the government check. They're not working anymore. All this stuff. So maybe it would have a, the backward effect. Yeah, I, I think uh, first the fears uh, that if we don't prov- if we provide cash benefits to poor people rather than in kind benefits, they'll squander it on on junk food and and alcohol are wildly overblown. All the social science we have on this shows that this is just not a serious problem. Uh, that in fact uh, the money isn't wasted that way, and there are all kinds of enormous benefits to the poor to get the money uh, in uh, to get the money rather than to be. Uh, sort of forced to bow and scrape for all these uh, cobbled together in-kind benefits, uh, all of which have different, uh, uh, often confusing uh, criteria and uh, and eligibility requirements, et cetera. 
so there's a lot of, uh, of, of kind of degrading, oppressing paternalism of the poor that could be eliminated and the, the, the experience of poverty could be less degrading and less uh, awful uh, if you just got money rather than uh, having to go through all these bureaucracies to get handouts. Beyond that, I think there's a big distinction between uh, between uh, helping poor people contingent upon work and helping poor people with no work requirement or work contingency. Uh, what I would favor in terms of expanding the safety net would be something that builds on the current earned income tax credit, uh, which is a payment to working poor people, uh, and, but which currently only covers working families. So the people who are sort of most uh, – that we're most focused on now, dropping out of the workforce, et cetera, are single men. They are not covered by any uh, uh, work-encouraging social program at all. They face a whole range of uh, social programs that cut against and, and undermine work incentives. So I would like to see welfare policy very much uh, have a pro-work uh, orientation and and which would require rethinking a lot of how we do things right now because it's – current welfare state is larded with anti-work incentives. I don't think in terms of the, the question of, of deepening cultural divisions or, or racial divisions, uh, I mean the EITC never comes up as, as something about freeloaders and it just it, – it doesn't, it doesn't give off that vibe at all. I think people are OK uh, with, uh, with, with, with helping the working poor get ahead in a way that they are not OK with helping people not work. Uh, so I, I think – uh, that a a more uh, moderate libertarian libertarian uh, social policy uh, that was much more tied to work, to encouraging work uh, rather than providing an alternative to work uh, would uh, mitigate rather than exacerbate these social divisions. So let's talk about the the other side of this too, because I'm, I'm sure some of our listeners are are thinking right now that we have here a purported libertarian saying he's okay with the welfare state we can talk what that what that means but what kind of things do you think we can in this sort of trade that we would make with liberals if they would listen uh, where we would say okay you you can have your welfare state but we we need this so to speak what are those things that we need i mean you talked about these restrictions but what yeah. are they yeah so first i i resist thinking about this in terms of of trading because that 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 looks like two big voting blocks, sort of. Okay, I take some of uh, of column B, and you take some of column A, and we'll put it together, and we'll have a new party. But libertarians don't have that to offer. We don't have any voters, uh, so all we have to offer is ideas. So what I'm offering to liberals is, hey, these are the ideas that that are most associated with libertarians. Although you'll see through the links that plenty of people on the center left buy into the idea that markets work too. Um, but if you borrow these libertarian ideas, you will uh, advance your liberal values more effectively and uh, <clears throat> stave off the uh, Trump ap apocalypse as well. So it, it's not this what do libertarians have to give up. Right now, libertarians are completely in the wilderness. If a uh, presidential candidate in 2020 were a, uh, were a kind of pro-market, pro-growth Democrat uh, running against – protectionist uh, Trump, I don't think he would have any problem attracting a fair number of libertarian-ish voters. So it's not like libertarians have to give up something and give up the welfare state. It's just if liberals would would elevate uh, a pro-growth, pro-market orientation, uh, they would they would certainly attract more libertarian-ish uh, uh, voters or college-educated whites. Uh, still, uh, Hillary lost to Trump. 
So, so that would be – so we, we need to get the growth as you said. But that, that first of all, growth is a – something that the liberals are often quite suspicious of or, and, and markets too and not just the Sanders type and the deregulation stuff. If we're talking about deregulation, they, they run away too and if their opponents in elections can say this guy voted to deregulate the economy, then that could be – a a cost to lose. So, but some of the regulations you talk about fixing to fix growth, you think are a specific type of regulation that the liberals should be concerned with. Yeah. So this all this ties into work I've been doing on the policy side. Uh, I did a paper uh, last year with the uh, I'm good with wacky names, libertarians, and this paper, uh, low hanging fruit guarded by dragons, uh, uh, which outlines a pro growth uh, policy agenda. Uh, specifically designed with the idea that it might appeal uh, to people across the political spectrum. Uh, so my argument was we're in a slow growth era. It looks like it's not just a sort of cyclical hangover from the Great Recession, but rather there are kind of deep structural reasons why growth in the 21st century might be harder than growth in the 20th century. Uh, and uh, and so unless we improve our policy game, we should expect uh, lower uh, economic performance and that's a bad thing. So uh, so we're in a growth slowdown. We ought to do something about it. Uh, the left and the right uh, both have a stake in this. They may have big differences about how they want to spend the extra money that more growth would bring. Uh, but that's an argument for another day and they both have a stake in getting to that other day. The question then is, well, okay, well, what does a common end uh, matter if everybody's got different ideas about means to that end? So I was groping, well, what's 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 a common means? What are uh, policies that might uh, that might uh, command assent across the ideological spectrum? And uh, and thinking about the problem that way, I I started thinking about policies that might fit that bill, and then I thought about what they had in common, and and what occurred to me was that they were all species of what I called regressive regulation. So regulations that interfere with a new entry, uh, competition, entrepreneurship, uh, and do so in a way that shifts income and wealth up the socioeconomic scale, so re regressive redistribution. So why are these particular kinds of policies uh, uh, not ideologically polarized? Well, first, even though Republicans typically are pro-market, they're also pro-business uh, and the uh, uh, these regulations are ones that, that actually help existing businesses fend off competition from new entrants. Uh, and so the oxen being gored by pro-growth reform here would be core Republican constituencies in many cases. And so uh, not likely to find these amongst the sort of hobby horses of right-wing uh, pro-growth reform. Likewise, uh, because they haven't become right-wing hobby horses, they don't, aren't immediately anathematized by the left. Uh, and even though people on the left tend sort of instinctively to valorize regulation as, as controlling uh, greedy corporations in the name of the people, even they can smell out a racket and see that sometimes uh, what's being justified in terms of public interest is really just a way to uh, redistribute money to plutocrats. Uh, so uh, it seemed to me that this ideologically was uh, sort of a, a no man's land uh, where you could maybe get around the polarization of Washington these days uh, through uh, – through weird, odd bedfellows kinds of coalitions. Uh, and in the issues that I identified, uh, which is high-skill immigration, uh, uh, intellectual property, uh, patents and copyrights, uh, occupational licensing and zoning, uh, those are all areas where uh, the, there are divisions within the left, divisions within the right, 
that are starker than the divisions between the left on the one hand and the right on the other. And, and so I think this uh, – when we now shift back to kind of thinking about li- libertarians, could a democratic party actually be more free market oriented? Seizing upon this agenda would be less of a stretch than than uh, than moving in sort of stereotypically pro-market directions, Stereo- stereotypically deregulatory uh, directions. When people hear deregulation, Republicans and Democrats, they tend to think about removing costs that burden existing businesses, health, safety, workplace regulations uh, that uh, that add cost to business and slow them down and, slow, and <clears throat> increase their burdens, reduce investment, reduce profits. Uh, progressives just automatically uh, have a warm, fuzzy feeling about such regulation. That's the whole reason we have government is to do those kinds of things. Uh, so anytime they hear deregulation, they hear uh, like an attack on, on truth, justice in the American way. When you see though that a big part of a pro-market deregulation agenda isn't removing costs from existing businesses but rather removing subsidies from existing businesses that shield those businesses from competition, then the – uh, the, the 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 feeling is very different, and one that would be, you know, less of a, of a dramatic shift by Democrats to make. This our conversation so far has focused almost entirely on economic issues, um, but there's the when you listed the the three big ones that you originally thought the conservatives had two out of the three on. Um, I mean, there, there's more to it. There's the social issues and there's the foreign policy and those are things that, yes, libertarians are free markets, but we also care an awful lot about social freedoms, about civil liberties um, and about a, let's call it, more peaceful foreign policy. Um, and you say – so in the, in the beginning of your article, you, you list kind of the the summary of what libertarianism would mean from both sides. And so you say with respect to economic issues, the libertarian proposition would look more libertarian on regulation and more liberal on redistribution, which is what we've been talking about. But you also say that regarding social issues and foreign affairs, the hybrid I had in mind would maintain the commitments of contemporary liberals. And I guess I'm – if contemporary liberals are liberals as we've seen them for the last at least eight years – they don't look all that good or even all that libertarian on social issues and foreign policy. They've been pretty consistently pro-war. Um, they have been fairly opposed to civil liberties or at least not that opposed to the government violating them. I mean I remember the shortly after the Snowden revelations came out, it was either Slate or Salon published a piece um, because Cato had kind of gotten out in front of that issue and they published a piece that was basically warning their readers away from the libertarians. Like these guys may look good on this but don't don't be tricked. They're really free marketers. Um, they're just pretending to care about this sort of stuff. But they but the, the left didn't really care much about that in part because it was their guy doing it. And then on the social freedoms issue, they yes, they want to elevate the status of gays and blacks, but it's about it's about elevating the status of traditionally disadvantaged groups often at the expense of other groups, the identity politics. Um, they don't they don't seem to care much about social freedoms. Um, and we see that with what's going on in college campuses and kind of the declining support for free speech. So is there really on that side of things, on the the social side, the the civil liberty side and the foreign policy side, do liberals, at least in the contemporary sense, offer 
libertarians much at all or anything really better than conservatives do. Yes. Uh, so first, I would distinguish between liberals and the entire left. There's certainly an illiberal left. Uh, I'm, and I've got nothing to say to them. They are not interested in anything I have to say. Uh, I'm so I'm talking at the the. Left of the center uh, is a big space in American politics, and those people closer to the center are the people who are likely to possibly be interested in what I have to say. Those f on the far fringes of the left, uh, I, we're not going to come to any kind of agreement. Uh, so, uh, and if one always sort of leaps to saying, well, the left can't be partners with libertarians because look at these crazy loony lefties on the far fringe, that just doesn't have anything to do with anything. Life happens at the margins. If more centrist center lefties become more libertarian in their outlook. That pushes the world in a good direction regardless of what the people on the fringes are doing. Uh, so there's that. Secondly, there's a big difference between uh, between what liberal people think and what Democratic office holders do. So uh, yes, the Republican Democratic Borg, National Security Borg seems to be uh, just promiscuously interventionist uh, – uh, regardless of, you know, on both sides. Still, uh, there is much more anti-war sentiment on the left than there is on the right. There's drug warriors that are, who are Democrats. There are surveillance state uh, enthusiasts who are Democrats. But you're going to find more support for ending the drug war. You're going to find more support opposing the surveillance state on the left than you're on the right. So on a lot of social issues, yes, public opinion on the left and the right isn't what we want it to be. Uh, but I say on a number of these issues where historically the left was better than the right, still historically the left is better than the right, even if Democratic office holders aren't and even if everybody on the left isn't and some people on the left are getting even worse. It, it seems that some of the, the things you list, uh, I, I'm not exactly sure why except for maybe Trump. And meanwhile, I think, you know, <clears throat> I would be unsurprised if over the coming years this flip on free trade doesn't really get cemented and it will happen not because liberals are pro-market. It will be because liberals are against bashing foreigners. Uh, so it will be their internationalism rather than than their, you know, sympathy with Smith and Ricardo that carry the uh, the water. But that's OK. Well, it seems that that except for the, the I think you might be right about immigration and, and trade. But a lot of these things that are strangling the economy are, are kind of things that Trump has kind of intimated that he might understand and if he if he seems to maybe understand anything and that's a big if but uh, he might understand how businesses and growth are hampered by regulations of the types you mentioned so for i mean obviously on your list of things that we can kind of the low hanging fruit as you put it so he's not going to the high shield immigration we'll just say he won't get into that but the other 3 Patents and copyrights, occupational licensing, and land use regulations. Aside from the fact that land use is very local, but I bet we'd do better trying to get this, this administration to look at those than to try and galvanize the liberals to push that or resist along those lines or, or anything that you're discussing. Yeah. So on on uh, just to take those specific issues on occupational licensing and zoning, they're both state and local issues. They're limited, not zero, but limited things the feds can do about those. And for sure, Republican uh, policymakers are increasingly interested in those uh, and would be sympathetic. Uh, but also uh, Democratic 
policymakers and left of center uh, uh, economic analysts and experts have also been focusing on these issues a lot. The Obama administration did policy papers on occupational license and zoning that were both very good. This was doing a policy paper saying this area of policy is problematic is about the least thing you could do. It was just sort of dipping their toe in into the waters of this kind of uh, – pro-growth, pro-market reform. But they uh, but did agree that it was very hampering to yeah, but they, growth. Yeah, but they, they, they put down a marker and one could have imagined progress in those areas under a Clinton administration. So um, I, I think uh, on on those areas, I, I think it's going to be completely I, – I don't picture uh, Trump being in, 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 interested in policy at all. So True. these are too subtle to, to – be the obvious things that someone would do if they want to rev up the economy and particularly if they want to do deregulation. Now, this isn't – this does not exhaust uh, pro-growth possibilities for deregulation. In the areas where regulation does serve at least a – has a kind of plausible connection to serving the public interest and, and protect, protecting third parties on health and safety environment, um, nonetheless, uh, there are a whole host of uh, of regulations that are overkill, regulations that were a terrible idea in the first place, regulations that may have been okay once upon a time that are completely outdated, or uh, aggregates of regulation that each individual one maybe makes sense, maybe is defensible, but when you pile them together and see all their interactions, the whole thing becomes a mess. Uh, the Mike Mandel, who's a Democratic uh, uh, policy wonk with the Progressive uh, Policy Institute, talks about this kind of regulatory buildup as pebbles in a stream. You throw some pebbles in the stream, the stream of commerce keeps going and no problem and each pebble, no big deal, is indiscernible impact on anything. But over time, you keep doing them in there, you're going to dam the river, you're going to clog the stream uh, and that's where we are. So he has proposed a kind of regulatory improvement commission to weed out uh, 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 excessive regulations in areas where typically Democrats think this is, this is a good idea, we have regulations in this area. And and so on that front, still one can picture more centrist Democrats thinking, OK, health, safety, environment, regulation, a good idea, but we can have too much of a good thing and, and we need to do some updating, modernization, pairing back, et cetera. So I could picture that kind of agenda uh, possibly attracting a Democrat, but easier to picture a Republican doing it. And, it's, and that's the kind of thing uh, that uh, that I would uh, imagine and, and, and expect Republicans to – take a whack at in the next couple of years. And good for them if they succeed. Are you more optimistic this time uh, about the libertarian endeavor uh, since – I mean I'm not going to say you're you – know. You're predicting it will turn out better this time around than it did the last time you proposed it. Anybody who's been paying attention and who's optimistic on January 24th, 2017 is uh, – uh, I want what they're smoking. Um, so no, I'm not optimistic about anything right now. Uh, hopeful always. Uh, if so, uh, prognosticators took a beating last year. Uh, so uh, I don't even want to try to predict the twists and turns of American politics over the next coming year. So who knows uh, how things could shake out? One possibility is that Trump really does succeed in moving uh, this party durably in a Trumpist populist direction, uh, and that. Republican Party becomes a kind of white nationalist party and the Democratic Party becomes the kind of cosmopolitan party, in which case just refugees from the so pro-market refugees from Republicans could could 
inject a kind of libertarian uh, flavor into the Democratic Party uh, through a process of realignment. That's something that could happen. Or it could be that we have uh, we <laughs> degenerate into an authoritarianism on the right versus an authoritarianism on the left. And uh, so I'm looking for hopeful agendas and how to get there. But uh, uh, but no, uh, optimism uh, seems uh, seems facile right now. Thanks for listening. This episode of Free Thoughts was produced by Tess Terrible and Evan Banks. To learn more, visit us at www.libertarianism.org.